All right, friends, I invite you to stand as a gesture of reverence and surrender to the scriptures this morning. We're in Mark 12, verses 18 to 27. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. You may grab a seat. Much to the chagrin of most of you in this room, we are back to Mark. Many of you requested that I preach another sermon on politics, but the preaching agenda had us move on. So if you're new with us, we have been preaching on politics the past like seven weeks. And uh, I do trust that God has taken us to important places with that. And um, I also acknowledge that, as I always say, those sermons just start the conversation. There may be questions that come to your mind in three months related to that stuff, and you can never stop asking them. So we should keep wrestling together. Many of you would rightly ask. I, someone yesterday was like, what do we do with that now? Like, great question. We should live in that one for a while because there's not a clear answer. But our answer is to keep following Jesus and that he wants even that space. And so in the coming year, when we see stuff in the news, when things are happening, keep the perspective that Jesus is the true king and he cares about that stuff and you can always process it with each other. But nonetheless, we're back in Mark. Uh, that's how we got to the politics in the first place, that we are on this long, slow, verse-by-verse -verse journey in Gospel Mark to be in Jesus' life, his teachings, his death and resurrection, because we are here because of Jesus and we follow Jesus. And so what better way to learn what that means than to slow walk behind him in his life and be uh, slow to embrace what he has for us today. And so we're back in Mark for at least a couple weeks, um, and then we will be off again in another series on love soon. And so the main question that I think is going on in this passage, where the Sadducees have a weird question about the resurrection, is how is God in the scriptures, in the world, and in the future? Is he, in fact, in those places? Is he at work in those places? Is he at work in the past through scriptures? Is the living God at work here? Is he this for, thus far still powerfully at work in the present here and now? And he is, is he going to be at work in the future? And if so, how? That's the lingering question. And kind of a, a summary of answers to that question is that trust will precede knowledge of the scriptures of the power of God and the resurrection. That if you get into the question about whether God is in the scriptures, whether he is actively, presently, lovingly engaged in the world, 
and whether he will be powerfully engaged in the future at the resurrection, to even know those things on Jesus' terms is going to take trust first. It begins with a trust giving yourself to the reality that's true, and then you come to know that it's true. And then you believe it is. If you don't trust, then you might ask Jesus an asinine question and get a dismissive answer. Because trust will proceed whether you know, know, not know about, but know the scriptures, the power of God, and the resurrection. And so what is one unit? I'm not going to do this in an outline, by the way. Some of y'all used to being here frequently. I have a nice outline, 90 million slides, a bunch of highlights and quotes and stuff like that. This ain't going to be that kind of sermon, okay? Because this is a sermon from my heart to my heart, and I need to hear this bad. And uh, if God wants y'all to be a part of it, fine. But every time I want to think about what I want to say today, I'm wrestling with God and learning about this from God and wanting to hear from God. And uh, I'm trying to front load the order so that if it goes off the rails, you know the outline. So you better take a picture of this. And, and then that will kind of, if you're like, what was the sermon about? At least you have this picture. And you're like, it was clear as day. Who knows what the next 20 minutes will behold. But the unifying theme, so I'm going to try to show you, because I was starting to try to break this down, and they're all interwoven. If you don't think God's in the scriptures, you don't think he's powerfully at work in the world in the present. If you don't think he's powerfully at work in the world in the present, you're not going to think he's at work in the future. If you don't think he's going to come back and raise dead things to life in the future, you're not going to go to the scriptures and think it has anything meaningful for now. So it's all woven together. You're going to have to trust that the living God is moving through these scriptures and still fulfilling those powerfully today and will do so in the future. That's the sermon that I'm preaching to my soul. I hope you hear it too. The unifying theme in all that is that God has overwhelming love for this world, this body, your body, and this life. Overwhelming love for it. Scriptures is God's love story that he hates what has happened in his world. And he will be unrelenting in his pursuit to get it back. Every last wound, every last injustice, every last impression, uh, oppression, every last sin, every last piece of brokenness, that he is powerfully at work in those places, and he is going to do something to take it back. And when you believe that is going on in scriptures, that it's not man wrestling with God. No, man, it's God revealing himself to man. It's God breaking into this world and saying, I'm here for you and I'm coming back. I'm the God who sees and knows and I'm here. And then when you start to believe that, you think he has concern for what happens to me now. There's nothing that happens that he's kind of like absent-minded about. He's all in. And he's so all in that he's going to not just dismiss this world like, man, that was some trouble. Let's go fly away in eternal bliss, float on the clouds, and just escape that. He's going to remake this world, this wound. You're bringing a wound into this room today, and he's going to take that wound and remake that wound. Not dismiss it. He's going to remake that wound. I'm getting ahead of myself, man. I was supposed to say that later on. That's why there ain't no outline. I'm just going to read the scripture. We're going to do Bible study together, and I'm just going to keep saying what I just told you a thousand times. So again, if one of y'all sleep, you know what? Last week, there was at least four people sleeping in this room. <laughs> ah! I was dying. I'm like, man, I'm going to find somebody engaged. Boom. He's looking at me. 
Somebody said, man, uh, that was a great sermon. And by the way, if you saw me sleeping, it wasn't because it was a bad sermon. Uh, I just had a bad night of sleep. I'm like, man, same. I'm glad you were here. For real. I'm being playful today, man. We just all going to find out how this is going to go. All right. So first verse here. Let's just break. I'm just breaking this down. I'm going to keep throwing down to you about how the fact that God is all in on this world, your life, your woundedness, and the injustice of the world. He's going to bring healing. He's going to make, make things right. So he says, then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with the question. So the Sadducees is one of the major uh, parties of leaders in the Jewish world. And one of the main facts we know about them is that they did not believe the resurrection was coming. They did not have that expectation. And that, there's very little else we know about them. But we also know that they were a wealthy group of aristocrats that resided in Jerusalem. And so I'm curious, I want to just name, what is the, the resurrection belief that they don't believe in, and why might they not believe in it? And it's going to have lots of effects. Because if you don't think God is powerfully engaged to be at work in the future resurrection, you're going to just start playing that back. He's also not really caring about what's going on right here and now. And maybe he wasn't as active as some of y'all think he was in the scriptures. And so they believe, what the resurrection belief was, was not like life after death where we're going to be floating in the clouds. It was like a belief that was accumulating through the Old Testament. Early on in the Old Testament, you don't realize this is a story, right? This is a story. It's, going, it's moving towards somewhere. It's going in a direction. So there's some stuff early in the story that it makes it seem like there's no real life after death. We're just going to die. That's it. But as the Old Testament progresses, you get powerful promises like in Daniel and Ezekiel that God's going to raise dead things to life one day. And then that fueled the fire of first century Jews where the norm in the first century Jewish world was to believe God was going to bring dead things to life. Not we will one day float into disembodied bliss in heaven, but that one day God would remake this world and all the wrongs wronged in this world would be made right. Now, many of the people believed it was going to be much different than Jesus did it. They thought it would be all in one go, that it would be sudden, uh, that it would ha might have a different kind of emphasis than what Jesus emphasized, but they still believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe that. So we have this third option that no one thought about, which is like this disembodied floating in the heavens. That didn't exist. A lot of people are like, oh, yeah, one day we'll just all float around. Nope, that, didn't, that wasn't there. You either thought God was going to remake this world and we'll be a part of it, or there was nothing, we're just going to die. And so the Sadducees didn't believe that and start to think about those implications. Now, why wouldn't they believe it? Because they were wealthy and powerful and could use the status quo to remain as is. They had control. The, the belief in a resurrection was a revolutionary belief. It inspired uh, a sacrificial, courageous faith acts. It inspired people to die for their faith. And they took great comfort in the resurrection promise as a way to deal with the fact that people were going to die and, uh, for their faith, and they wanted God to do something about that. But if, you, if life's kind of going well, you don't want to entertain revolutionary beliefs that may require some courage. You would like to just keep things as they are. So let's keep that belief at bay. That might call too much of us so that we can just rest in the status quo. Now, what I'm learning, though, from human experience is that it doesn't take wealth to make you want to stay there. Sometimes people will just choose the devil that they know, no matter how oppressive their life is, over some form of healing they may call them to something harder. You know that life, don't you? So on the one hand, 
you could deny the resurrection and have this basically secular view of the world that God's distant and not really at work because life is going so well for you, you don't need God. But also you can have that view because life's so poor for you that you're like, man, I'm just going to close in on myself because there's no way out. People that are addicted are living there. People that are uh, in a path of, of, of social and self-destruction are living there. Same belief. God's not outworked in the world. It's all up to me to maintain a status quo that is just satisfactory enough for me. And yet, man, there's no path forward then. There's no spiritual resources to make you suffer for anything. There's no hope that would take the suffering that life will deal you, whether you want it to or not, and make something of it and bring joy in a surprising way. There's no way to cope with it, so you just spend this life trying to protect yourself to avoid anything bad ever happening to you, and you're just shriveled up and self-enclosed. You know the temptation, man. And so the Sadducees, though, were uh, faithful by name, but you can see without a belief in the resurrection, that just triggered back in. And they also lacked a belief in the power of the scriptures. They lacked a belief in the power of, that God could intervene at any moment right now. And that affected uh, their, their, their way forward. Even though they were faithful in word, they lived a secular life. They lived an atheist life. They lived a deist life. God may not be that concerned. Imagine how that might harden your heart. But man, Jesus is going to step to them right now after they ask this dumb question. He said, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. Second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. And last of all, the woman died too at the resurrection. Whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? They think they're smart with this theological conundrum. But it's lame. It's a lame question because they have a cynical view of the world, and so they ask a cynical question. Some of you are like, I'm just asking questions. No, you're not. We know what you're trying to do. You know, people try to get away. I'm just asking questions. We're just asking funny questions. No, you're not, man. You're trying to get away with something. And Jesus is going to call them on. So where's this question coming from? They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, in the first, in the Torah. They didn't believe God was active beyond that. He laid it down in the Torah and the rest of it, and he just set it in motion, and all the rest of the stuff is not there. And so in the Torah, there was this law that applied for that time that was called a Leverite marriage, where it was so crucial at that point in the story for the seed of Abraham to pass on, that God made promises to a specific people, because he cared about this world, that he would populate this specific people so that through them and through their little land, he would bring renewal to the whole world. And so at that point... In this story that's moving somewhere, it was crucial that they preserve the line of children. And this was a grace for that period of time to allow God to kind of keep the story going in each family's line of children. But they're stuck in those first five books. They don't realize that as the story moves, God, God shows the people in their own time that that does not solve the core problem. And you would know that doesn't solve the core problem. Wait a minute. So he died, but then you're going to have babies, and I'm going to say that it's that dude's baby, but we know it's not that dude's baby. It's that. You would know that didn't solve the problem. That didn't bring real healing. But it's a path, a signpost, a preview on the way to the kind of deeper healing God would do only if you believe that God is still at work and he's not done yet. But they're stuck believing he's not at work and he's finished. They don't keep reading to see how powerfully in the prophets God is proclaiming how he's going to make this 
an, a, a, an obsolete promise. Now, people that read the Bible as a flat document, kind of like the Sadducees, are quick to throw out the Bible. That's kind of crazy law. We don't believe that silly stuff. How, what kind of harm would that do to the woman and to the man and to the other marriages? But recognize the bigger picture. It's a story going somewhere, and you're living on the other side where Jesus powerfully fulfilled this story. But that's their question, and they think they're being slick to trap Jesus, to make him deny the resurrection and rally up people, or deny them and rally up them so that they can kill him. We're in the last week of his life here. And so, let's see how Jesus responds. He didn't have any time to entertain this bad faith question. He replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures of the power of God? You do not know the scriptures. How hard is it to tell? It's like telling a person who's been to seminary and been a pastor for 30 years that you don't know the Bible. It's like, I know the Bible. I went to seminary. You know, I did my tests. I passed my oral exams. I wrote my papers and stuff. But Jesus is confronted and said, you do not know it. They can know about it. They can know the facts. But they have not trusted God in order to personally and experientially know it. And I feel like, in this area in particular, maybe more than most in your room, I actually can say this because I can know a lot about it. I, I talk, I have to. And yet I can tell you from personal experience, it means jack squat if I actually personally know it. I'll tell you right now. There are people that know less about it than me who are putting me to shame in their spiritual maturity all the time. I'm like, man, they should be preaching. Man, this woman's a preacher. She's just throwing it down in that meeting. Man, my wife's a preacher. She was laying it down preaching the word to me, like that, that they know in their bones the scriptures. Versus he's saying, y'all don't even, you don't know it. You wouldn't ask this dumb question if you knew the scriptures. Let's keep talking about that knowledge of scriptures real quick, and I'll come back to the power of God. It's the same thing. If you believe that the power of God is at work in the scriptures, you will then know the scriptures and know that the power of God is still active in you. But Paul talks like this same way, when he's addressing these people, when he's writing to Timothy, he says, if anyone teaches otherwise, other than what he's been saying, and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching, they are conceited and know nothing. They don't understand anything. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth. Now, to participate in that kind of conflict... You actually have to know a lot. You would have to understand a lot about theology and about scriptures to be able to engage in the kind of controversies they describe. A lot of words floating around that mean nothing. But he's saying you don't know anything. If you were to know something for real, you wouldn't ask those kind of dumb questions. You wouldn't participate in these kind of controversies. You wouldn't keep it out there. You wouldn't imagine that you have this life to kind of manage on your own. You would believe that God is at work doing something bigger that we don't need to be debating in that kind of fashion. Versus Paul, he's calling them out for understanding nothing, but Paul says, I purposely determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. That's a different kind of knowledge. On the other hand, Paul does know a lot about stuff. That brother's wicked smart. He, he's educated. He went all the way through the ranks of Jewish education. He went through the ranks of learning philosophical education. He knew the world. He knew the word. He knew the Lord. He knew it all. That brother wrote down amazing theology. He was a brilliant teacher. And he's saying, it's rubbish. It's garbage because I don't know anything but Jesus who died for me. 
See how knowledge works? If you want to know the scriptures, it starts by trust. I determined to know nothing and give my trust to the Lord and him crucified. And then the knowledge about scriptures will turn into really knowing the power of God in scriptures. But that takes a trust. This is not, oh, we're re- we get to read how humans wrestle with God. No, it isn't. This is, you're reading God breaking into the world to get his people back. This is God's revelation. He broke in. You get to hear God's voice. It's not how, it's interesting how ancient man wrestled with God. No, this is how God broke in to reveal himself to human beings and let him then participate in his revelation. And so, yeah, he says, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God because they live a life with only imagining what they have available to them is these physical resources around them. Okay, I have wounds. I have threats against me. I have danger. I have death. Uh, we better work it out with what's available to me. There's no belief that there might be an inbreaking of the Lord at any moment to do something crazy. That God at any moment could come in here and change my heart up. He could come into that broken relationship and bring a healing. He could come into a community that was stagnant and bring life. He could come into an addiction and bring freedom and, and healing. He can come into where there's enemies and bring forgiveness that stuns the soul. If you do believe the power of God, he can and will break in. Basically, you know in scriptures, and you know the power of God. But if the, the, the Sadducees imagine, well, we only got in front of us. And so when you have only in front of you, what do you do? The threat of death means, well, we, all the most we can do is protect our reputation, our posterity going forward, our legacy. That's hopeless. That is desperation. And that kind of belief is actually crushing to the soul. This is not knowing the power of God that is started with the scriptures that was unleashed through the Spirit so active right now in the church as we look back on what God did in the scriptures and look forward to the resurrection, which is the next point. If you believe that God has been powerfully at work since the beginning out of love for this world right here, all the way through scriptures, he kept chasing us, chasing us, chasing us. Man, I'm desperate to get my people back. Climax to Jesus and him crucified. That is looking towards the end where he's going to make this world right. This wound, this lack, this weakness, this sin, this suffering, this brokenness that you feel that you feel trapped in. You see no way out. That's the Sadducees. They see no way out. But if you believe in the power of God, there's a way out. He will make a way out. It's going to make things right. And so it's the resurrection. Jesus says, when the dead rise, not if, whether, they might, when the dead will rise. No, no, not when one day while you still rest in the ground, your spirits will enjoy all the pleasure you want in the world. No, 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 no. That dead body who died of cancer, that dead body who was violently killed, that dead body who was abused her whole life, this dead body who was wrapped up into a a pandemic and a plague, those dead bodies will be raised to a new life in this broken world and be made right. That's what, when he says, when the dead rise, this is what he's talking about. They will not marry nor be given a marriage. They'll be like angels in heaven. You're like, well, hang on a second. Anthony, you just said that they won't be like the angels. They will be unlike the angels in one way, or like the angels in one way. They won't marry or be given a marriage anymore. Sex and marriage are temporary. Some of y'all that have good marriages like, oh, no, I want to keep my marriage person for life, man. I remember me and Chelsea first read this. We were like 20 and getting married, and everything was like, we can't wait to be married. We're like, what? Our marriage won't be permanent. Nope. But this is good news. Because actually what it means is your level of community and friendship in heaven with 
everyone will be deeper and more intimate than even the best marriage on earth. Come on, man. That's resurrection. That's bringing dead things to life. How much of the dead things we experience is through relationships that are broken and not enough and feel like there's a gap and there's a wound and there's a brokenness and something's not reconciled. God's like, you're going to be so intimate. Every wound and obstacle permanently gone. So all the way together. Nothing in the way anymore. We won't even need marriage, sex, procreation anymore. We got, we got, a, we got everybody's together now. You don't need sex. Sex points towards this where there will be a fulfillment without it. It says something about, I mean, we refer back to our marriage series about singleness and all that. This kind of teaching is why singles were raised up in the first century, because they are looking forward to this. The single life testifies to what is coming. Their struggle and sacrifice to be single now is pointing towards the day when we won't need marriage or sex or procreation because God is giving all the life needed. Man, we should raise up our single friends. They preach that to us. And so now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? I love this. Jesus is brilliant, man. If, he's, if you're just looking at the whole testament and you're trying to make a case for the resurrection, you're going to Daniel. Daniel 12, 12, man, it's clear as day. There's going to be a resurrection. But he goes with where their authority is. They actually believe in the books of Moses. So he goes where he's like, okay, if you're only going to say you submit to this, let's go where you are submitted to. It's like you can't argue from Scripture to people who think Scripture is worthless. You better appeal to a life that knows how to suffer for Jesus, man. That's where you start with. You're going to point to some life you know who knows how to suffer for Jesus because people don't believe in the Scriptures. But they do believe in the books of Moses, so he's going to go there and say, since we're on the same page with that, let me show you how you are in conflict with that because the book of Moses teaches about the resurrection of the dead. So he says in the account of burning the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This may not sound like a convincing argument to you. Let me show you what's happening here. Moses is like, I don't know, at least 600 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, roughly. Ballpark. And he's saying, God is not going to associate himself with these dead men that are long gone when he is doing something new with Moses. That his covenant with the world and then with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a covenant that binds him to demand that he will bring new life to this decaying world. And if he's associating himself with those names that seem long dead, he's saying my covenant with this world to make this world right is stronger than their death that has kept them dead for 600 years. It's stronger than that. God's promise to stay active and powerfully in this world to make this world right is stronger than these men seeming to be dead and dead for good. He's saying then, those men that are dead and dead for good are actually going to come back. His resurrection is so sure that a 600-year-old decaying wound will be resurrected and turned around. Those exact dead bodies. No dismissal, no pretend it didn't happen. They did die. They ex suffered the decay of that, and now he's going to make it right. Now you say, that is not convincing to me. It wasn't convincing to them. And again, if you are the type of person who has put your, put your chips in first, you trust God. You trust he's real. You trust he's active. 
You trust that he's moving in the scriptures. You trust he's still present now. He could break into your life any moment. You trust he's going to bring dead things to life in the future. You are having a disposition of wanting to trust. That argument's convincing. The next verse is like, they were impressed by his answer because the rest of the people were from the surrounding areas and they believed in the resurrection. They were convinced of it and wowed by it because they already trust. We're not as objective as you imagine yourself to be. If you don't trust, you can't know. You know this, you know this relationally. If you can't enter in with a friend to take a risk that they may be a person that can hold your weakness, you're never going to know what they might do to hold your weakness. You start with the trust. Maybe this person can hold it. I'm going to put myself out there. And then you come to know that they can handle it. Same way, if you will trust that the living God has revealed himself in the scriptures, is the same living God that is powerfully at work in the world and can act at any time, and that one day he will bring dead things to life, you put yourself out to trust and you will discover that God meets you in that vulnerability and says, you're right, I am here. And man, relationally, isn't that powerful with a friend? When you put yourself out there to be vulnerable and discover that they don't gaslight you, they don't shame you, they don't guilt you, they say, man, I understand. I see how that could feel. I bet that hurts. I'm with you. You're allowed to struggle with me. That is soul-shaking good. That's what happens, too, when you trust that God is powerful at work in the scriptures, that when you open these, you are getting God's revelation to you. And it reminds you, he will break into your life now as you look forward to the fact that he will make all things right one day. And that's why Paul, this is where I would land. Paul's conclusion of all this is that he wants to, that's that trust, he wants to know Jesus. He wants to know Christ. He wants to know the power of his resurrection, but check this out, and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, beyond our resources that are available to us, beyond your reasons and rational thoughts, somehow, by mysteries overwhelming to us, he will bring all the specific dead things right back to life one day. Because he wants to know it. He has released his life to know it. But what it means to step into trusting to experientially know the power of God and to know the power of God in the scriptures and the power of God in the future is suffering now. I had a good brother this week preach to me when I was struggling. He preached to my soul. And he said, we all want the Christian life to be a life of blessing and glory, but it's a life of suffering. And it only makes sense if you're suffering because you know whatever way you suffer or lose, God's going to make things right one day. You don't have any resources available to us around here to love an enemy who does not repent, to forgive somebody that has wronged you, if they laugh when you confront them, what, how do you get, what, what gain do you have in this life? Nothing. But you participate in the suffering of Jesus to forgive and love even those who still hate you and mock you. You are learning to know Christ who himself was mocked. Christ who himself was crucified and looks to the resurrection of the dead. You ever known the experience of suffering and prayer? 
when you would like it to be a nice quick prayer that God meets you at. And man, that was nice and cozy. I said one sentence and God met me there with the burning bush and now I can just skip through the daffodils. <laughs> that ain't participation in the sufferings, man. It ain't. It is tears for two hours and maybe God was in it and we'll just find out today how he's in it. Because somehow <laughs> he was in that suffering and prayer. You ever prayed desperately for something to happen and you don't know if it's going to happen? That's what I'm talking about. That's how you know Christ. That's how you trust in order to know the power of God. That's how you trust in order to know that God is active in the scriptures as you choose to suffer in the present by doing faithful things. If you chose to be a mentor with the kind of women that Jess is talking about, some of you are like, man, I can't make myself suffer. I'll tell you how to do it. If you're like, man, I don't suffer at all. I'm going to tell you. You're going to be a mentor to one of these girls. They will make you suffer. Because you're going to hear their wounds and their stories that will be beyond this world. You cannot even believe the stuff that happens to some of these women. And that, at the moment, they presume is just normal. And you're like, that exists? And you won't be able to not suffer when you're not with those women, as you imagine what they're going through all the time. The memories that haunt them. That's participation in suffering. You ever been with people that are broken like that? You sat with someone who's dying of cancer that was once so full of life? You're choosing to suffering with them. And when you do, you are showing you want to know Jesus more than you want to know the status quo, more than you want to know the ease of this life, more than you want to know pleasure and comfort. You're saying, I don't want to know that. I want to know Christ. I want to know that he's powerfully at work in this world, powerfully at work in these scriptures, and powerfully going to make these sufferings I'm experiencing and witnessing and walking alongside right one day. Somehow. You ever used to scream somehow in a prayer. Somehow, you better do it. That is how you know how to suffer with Jesus. You ever had a, a something you wanted so bad, a pleasure that would feel so good to do, but you know to let yourself do it, would be to betray Jesus. And so you resist for life. I think about people that struggle with suicidal thoughts. And if you are there, that's haunting because you can't fail once. Get it? You can't fail. Like other struggles, you're like, oh man, I'm struggling with impatience and I yelled at my kids and so man, I better change from that. But if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, you, you have to recognize you never get to gratify what your flesh wants you to do so bad. Can you imagine what they feel? They can't slip. God's with them in it, though. And that means that every day that you, that you exist still as a person that struggles with that is a day that you get to know Jesus because he says, I'm suffering with you. Your life's worth it. Stick with it because one day, somehow, the wound that makes you want to do that, he's going to heal. The thing you feel like you lack, God's going to make right. Somehow. And even if they were to cross that threshold, the rest of us will suffer with Jesus and to say, somehow, you're not going to let that be that, that boy or that girl's end. You're going to make it right. Somehow. That's what suffering, participation in the present life, is when you're looking for God to come back one day and make it right. This is the kind of stuff we're invited into. To trust God in the present by adopting a posture willing to sacrifice because you are choosing to be just confident enough that he will make it right. You're like, man, I don't feel confident. I don't care what you feel. You better be 50.001% confident. 
just confident enough to do the thing. I could have lots of doubts that this chair will hold me up. I don't know how the chair works. Some engineer that made this chair knows how it works that it will hold up a man who weighs 180 pounds. I, I can't define it. I don't know about it. I can know just enough that it's going to hold me up when I sit down. Wouldn't that be something if I fell off the chair? <laughs> That would be a classic story, man. We put that on YouTube and go viral. That'd be real fun. Um, yeah, so you trust just enough. You suffer just enough today that says, oh, I struggle. I don't want it. I'm angry at God as I do it. I don't want to sit in the chair. But I trust you just enough. I'm going to sit in the chair. And somehow you build a day on that, an hour on that, and you become a person who knows the power of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection and you become a person that everyone else loves to be around. You know these people that know how to suffer for Jesus? And you don't realize that it costs them daily choices to suffer with him, to become the most pleasant, empathetic, emotionally stable people. You see it on the outside. They come to you and they give you hope. And you don't realize how much probably turmoil it took them on the inside with God to get there. We see the surface of Mother Teresa serving the poor of the poor and think, man, that must be easy to her. I'm glad God called her to that. Mm. Then she dies, and they find her journals, and she's like, God, I've not felt you in years. Because internally, it took a lot of turmoil with the Lord and denial of what she wanted day by day to become a person that is just radiating. She knows the sufferings of Jesus, the power of God, that God is active in scriptures when he tells her to do that, and that one day each poor person she meets is going to be raised to life, and what is robbed from this life, God will make right. I think I'm done, man. Let's pray.